All right, everyone, here's what I need. Here's what I need from you. I need you to sit back and check this out. God, that song, that song, that's a good, that song, if I could sum up being lost in the woods of West Virginia in a single song, that would be the song. That would be the song. There's no other song that can compare to being lost in West Virginia like that one. You know, there are still people, believe it or not, I believe this to be true, you know, I'm not one for for sharing pseudoscience, for sharing facts that aren't true, okay? So this is a bit of an opinion, but I think it's correct. I think, by all counts, there are still people lost in the woods of West Virginia since the Civil War, and they still don't know the Civil War's over. They are so deep in the wilderness that no one has ever told them. They're still shackled up, you know, shackled up, growing their own food, hunting their own food. No one knows. No one knows that the Civil War's over deep in the woods of West Virginia. And I guarantee you that they're on SoundCloud right now listening to that song by Duncan Lorimer. Yeah, because Duncan, not only is he a professor of physics at West Virginia University, but he's a musician, you know? And he's a professional. I'm going to call him a professional. He might not even call himself that. But here's, in my world, if you're on SoundCloud, professional. Oh, you got SoundCloud songs? Professional. You know? As long as it's not mumble rap. You know mumble rap? You know what that is? Mumble rap? That's essentially when someone gets real tired and then they make a song. That's what that is. But that's not Duncan Lorimer. Duncan Lorimer doesn't get tired and writes a song. Here's probably when he wakes up early because he's a, an adult. Okay? And adults wake up early. That's one thing I learned. Okay? Don't sleep until 10 a.m., 11 a.m. If you want to be an adult... Here's a good idea. Wake up early. So start there. If you're like, oh, I feel like a little kid. My parents treat me. Here's an idea. Wake up early. Okay? But anyway, Duncan Lorimer is joining me on the podcast today. He's fantastic. He's a great person to talk to. He's one of the most intelligent people in the world when it comes to pulsars, when it comes to studying these things with radio telescopes, when it comes to fast radio bursts, which are a hot topic in astronomy these days. He's, a, he's an excellent person to listen to, okay? And I hope you enjoy our conversation. I thank you for tuning in to the State of the Universe. What a clever podcast name that is. That is such a clever name, it's unreal. Guess what today is, though? If you're listening to this on the day that it comes out, if you're a real fan, not like those fake fans, a real fan, and you're listening to this on the day it comes out, it's Halloween. Spooky. You know You know what's more spooky? November 1st, when rent is due. You know? When, when your landlord comes knocking and you got an eviction notice. That's what's spooky. You know? Halloween. Oh, great. Go trick-or-treating. Unless you're going to give me money when I come to your house, get your trick-or-treating out of my life. Speaking of giving me money, check this out. Patreon.com slash the state of the universe. 
Okay? Feel free to support the show. You don't have to. You don't have to. This is free. This is free education for all of you. Free education entertainment. You don't have to support it. But if you want to, patreon.com slash the state of the universe. Throw a few bucks at the show. You get special benefits. You get special benefits from me. You know, you get you get input into the show in, in different creative ways. So go on that. Patreon.com slash the state of the universe. Consider giving the show some some love in that regard. But you know, just thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for listening. Now, let's ki- let's continue listening to the song Stark Draked, it's called, by Duncan Lorimer. And his his music is linked to down below. Wherever you're listening, down below that. Okay? And I hope that you enjoy our conversation. Three, two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show. Thank you for tuning in. Whether you're in Kuwait, I don't know. Maybe you're in Kuwait, maybe you're in Peru. I don't know. I don't know you, okay? But you know who I do know? I know Duncan Lorimer. He's joining us today. And Duncan, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks very much. Uh, yeah, my name is Duncan Lorimer. I'm originally from the UK, in the northeast of England, a town called Darlington. And right now I am sitting in the chair's office of the Department of Physics and Astronomy here in Morgantown, West Virginia, uh, where I've been at WVU for 12 years. Yeah, and Darlington, that might be the most English-sounding town name I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, it's the uh, its claim to fame is the home of the railway. So the first passenger uh, railway back in the age of steam went from Darlington to a nearby town of Stockton. Man, yeah. yeah. So, so why don't you give a little introduction into the the types of objects you study? You don't need to go too in depth because we'll do that throughout the show. But just sort of like, what do you study? Sure. Um, so I've, you know, I've been spending my the last uh, thirty years almost studying mostly objects called pulsars, and so these are the best way to describe them: are the collapsed cores of massive stars after they explode. Um, as a supernova. So they get very compact and very dense, and they spin very rapidly. They have huge magnetic fields, and the the most common analogy people make is that they're like cosmic lighthouses. They send out beams of radiation across the electromagnetic spectrum, all the way from radio to gamma rays, uh, and we we observe these pulses um, most commonly with radio telescopes, and we observe a pulse each time the beam crosses our line of sight. So I've been studying these objects all this time, and my main fascination with them is their demographics. You know, how many of them are there? Um, these are Milky Way objects, so they're in our galaxy mostly. Those are the ones we can see the best. Um, so trying to do a a population study and, and figure out from the 2,000 or so that we know um, what uh, what the rest of the population looks like. So that's that's been my driving force all this time. And then there's been lots of diversions along the way that we can get into for sure. Right. So so pulsars are, are really fascinating. I, I think I'm safe to say that they are the most dense, dense object we know of in the universe outside of a black hole. There is, you know, theoretical stars that are more dense mm-hmm. than a pulsar, but but a neutron star, which is what a pulsar is, 
is, I, I believe I'm safe to say, the most dense object that we have ever discovered. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and they were discovered back in 1967, and some people may know that they were discovered by Jocelyn Bell. Jocelyn Bell Burnell, and um, she won a, a breakthrough prize this year in physics. That's right, very physics. recently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and she donated all $3 million to charity, which is just, I don't know if I have that in me. I just don't know if I have that in me. I think I might <laughs> splurge, you know, I think I might eat steak for a week. I don't uh-huh. know. I guess maybe at, at stage in her career, she she might not need three million to throw around, but I don't I don't know if I could uh, I don't know if I could donate it all. Uh, yeah, I think I would have I would have taken a, a piece for myself and tried and then tried to to invest the the rest of it wisely. What she's done is great. She's put a lot into um, scholarships for women in science. That's correct. To really, yeah. really uh, give back. Yeah, and that and that's important because she. She very much got snubbed for a Nobel Prize back in 1967 during the or at the time of the discovery because she did discover that these pulsars um, and her her PhD advisor won the Nobel Prize for that. Um, now she is such a nice person, such a caring, kind-hearted person that she didn't even seem to mind much, and that is another thing about her that just is puzzling to me. I, f- I think I get mad, you know, I think I'd be pissed. But Yeah, I think, you know, she's taken it very well. And, you know, as she says, she's won just about every other prize there is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's, you know, one of those things that, that happens sometimes. But, yeah, she's, um, you know, all this time, the last 50 years, she's been an amazing ambassador for science in general. And, uh, yeah, she's just one of those people um, – I've had the good fortune to meet her a few times and just gives amazing presentations on this, uh, on pulsars. And she must have given the talk hundreds and hundreds of times. And uh, she just delivers it with the same energy that, that she's always done. It's great to uh, to have people like that in our field. Yes, it, it absolutely is. I want to get her on the show, actually. But, but yeah. it's, it's really hard to coordinate international people, you uh-huh. know, and, and she's right, right. studying international. So because I don't want to record at 3 a.m. and I think my neighbors would probably hate me if I did that. <laughs> but they, they might already hate me, but they might hate me more if I did that, you know. And so when pulsars were discovered in 1967, they were a real oddity. We didn't quite understand what they were. If if someone's out there listening, what you should imagine is imagine you have a a piece of paper and that piece of paper shows you the tor- or the the types of emissions that you see from an astronomical object, okay? And if we're looking at a pulsar with a radio telescope, what we'll see is these regularly timed beams, you know? We don't see a, a, a really big emission across the the spectrum as if we were looking at like a star, right? The sun is always beaming down on you during the daytime. A pulsar, you see like these regularly timed, and when I say regularly timed, I mean like to the, to the I don't even know, nanosecond. Am I safe to say that? Yeah, I mean, we're, um, we're able to count uh, the exact rotations of, of, stu- of these pulsars of you know, many millions of rotations in, in some cases. And so we can, we can measure the arrival times to sub-microsecond accuracy, uh, and it's, it's getting yeah. better all the time. And, and maybe you know the story better than me, but I, I know that, that I've, I've said this in planetariums for a long time that I've worked in. At the discovery of neutron or at uh, pulsars, we dubbed them. Some people dubbed them LGMs, uh, and that that acronym stood for Little Green Men because we couldn't uh, fathom an astronomical object that would send us such regularly beamed pulses. We thought that well, some people thought I shouldn't say we thought as a community in whole, but some people thought that 
the only thing that could be producing such a regularly timed beam was intelligent life out there somewhere in the universe. That's right. Yeah. Um, they, and they were, the first one was LGM one and then they were, then she found some more, uh, and that, that theory quickly became less and less attractive, uh, as it looked, you know, it, yes. But, and, but and, the sources themselves, they just look so unnatural at first sight, you know, especially you think 50 years ago, you know, no one had ever seen anything like that. Yeah. Yeah, now fast forward to today where we're able to to watch these things. Well, I should say here maybe is a better word. Hear these things uh, collide with one another. And, and we have a pretty good fundamental understanding of what they are. And we can observe the gravitational waves that are produced when they smash into one another. And that's some of the stuff that I work on. But nevertheless, their allure has not gone away. They're, they're an incredibly interesting object. And I'm curious, what got you interested in them? What What was it that said in your brain that, that made you say, I want to study pulsars. I want to understand these things. I want to understand, you know, their distribution across the Milky Way mm -hmm. galaxy. What, what was it? Well, I mean, I studied physics and astronomy as an undergraduate at Cardiff, and I was very fortunate to have as one of my mentors, um, a guy by the name of Bernard Schutz, um, who I'm sure that name is familiar to you. He's a, uh, a one of the giants in the field of relativity. And, um, I was like drifting around at that point. I really loved relativity um, and still do. Uh, and at the end of that class, we kind of got into these strange stars that you know I learned about back then, called neutron stars. And um, and, I, and I went up to Bernard, you know, in that semester, and I said, you know, I'm really really interested in these. You know, but I knew nothing. I, I, I had no no astronomy background really to speak of. And you know, how, and I said, how can we observe these? And he said. You haven't heard of Jodrell Bank, have you? <laughs> I said, <laughs> no, what's that? And so Jodrell Bank is this iconic observatory in the UK that, you know, I was just so naive at the time. I, I really had next to no knowledge that there was this giant radio telescope in Manchester. And he said, well, you know, you really need to, to think about going to Manchester to visit and, and see if you can get into their program. And uh, so that's what I did. And uh, they have... Uh, they've been at the forefront of many fields of radio astronomy, but in pulsar astronomy, they're you know they're one of the they were and still are one of the biggest groups to 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 study in that field. And so I was fortunate enough to to get a spot in the group that was then led by Professor Andrew Line, who is one of the giants and, and still is. He's retired, but is still active uh, in that field. And he got me just hooked on them. They were just so fun to study, and I you know I got into data analysis. Uh, and the, the search for pulsars just really fascinated me that you could be the first human being to point a telescope in the right direction uh, and write some code that would find this signal and you'd be the first person ever to see this celestial object. So I think that was got, got me really hooked, um, that side of things. Um, yeah, I want to elaborate on something you said. I, th I think it's very interesting. So you said that you wanted to get into their program and so you visited them. This is interesting, okay? Because this is in in stark contrast to the way that sort of getting into a program works today, right? Today, I shouldn't say that in every case. In some cases, you can, you know, certainly go visit and, and try to see what it is that, that people do. But today, it is very much a numbers game when, when you're getting into a program. Mm -hmm. And I, was the competition as fierce in your day? Yeah, So so nowadays... Um, you know, so I had a, I had a 
when I by the time I visited, I'd, I'd applied to go there. To be fair, but nowadays what we do is, you know, in our department we admit the students and then they come to visit. Exactly. Um, yeah. yeah. So, but when I was visiting Jodrell, uh, I had not been admitted, uh, and I was interviewed. You know, they, they they had a whole bunch of us there, and they they gave us tours. But then, you know, at some point in the day, they peeled you off into a room with a with a couple of professors, and they would you know grill you for half an hour and uh, find out what you knew and what you didn't know. And you know, then later on, you know, a couple of weeks later, you would get a letter back. Uh, you know, if you if you're lucky to get into a program, so that was, I think, more common, certainly in the UK, how it worked um, back back in the day. Yeah. Yeah, in a, in a lot of American universities, I know that you, you know your your life hangs on hangs on to you know a couple statements on various pieces of paper, and uh, I really value the interpersonal. I, I encourage any student out there. In fact, how I got into the graduate program I'm in is literally by by reaching out. I, I had such a bad string of of luck when it came to um what are called reus in in our mm-hmm. field a research experience for undergraduates there are these you know these things that you apply for when you're an undergrad and I, there's like so, it's so fiercely competitive right there's like six spots open at some universities and there's maybe like 200 people applying for the spots and mm-hmm. and some of the spots may be given to students at that university so, you know, the, the numbers that they accept are dwindled even further. And so I had such bad luck with these things that when it came time to apply for graduate school, I was like, no, nah, I got to do this differently. I cannot just, I cannot just ship a piece of paper and have them look at the piece of paper because whatever it was about me, I wasn't coming off well on paper. I don't know. Right. Maybe it was right. luck. I don't know. So I subjected myself to the exact thing that you just described. I reached out to every university before they had accepted, probably before they even looked at my application. Mm-hmm. And I was like, hey, I, I want to visit. I want to talk to someone. I want them to, to look at me to see that I'm a, you know, more than just a piece of paper. I'm a human being mm-hmm. and, and I can do this. You know, I'm good. Let, let me have a chance. Because right. I was, man, I was real discouraged after my undergraduate, you know, string of applying to these these super competitive, uber competitive uh, mm-hmm. RU things. So I encourage more people to subject themselves to that sort of admissions process. <clears throat> yeah, I think it, and it suits different people as well. I mean, I, I don't, I can't remember how much went into my application, but you know, the students that are applying to the program here, they have to write personal statements, you know, and I, I know that I wasn't a very good writer back then at all. So right. I wouldn't have come off very well on, just on paper. So, uh, yeah, exactly. thank goodness. Yes. Yeah. So we, we, we sort of got off, off neutron stars, but I want to come back and I, mm-hmm. I did some, I, I want to educate the, the people listening because you, I think it's important to have a scale for a neutron star. So I did some sort of like back the envelope calculations in preparation for this. And uh-huh. so a, a typical neutron star, you could say weighs about one and a half times the mass of our sun. Okay. Right. But it's only for the people listening who are in, in America, 12 miles in diameter. Okay, for the people who use a system that actually makes sense, about 20 kilometers in diameter. Okay, so that means if you were on the surface of such an object, which you you couldn't be, of course, you wouldn't have a very fun time there. But if you were on the surface of an object like that and you could survive, you would be able to drive around the entire object in less than an hour if you were traveling at highway speeds. Okay, now if you were to travel around our sun in the same fashion, if you were to drive around our sun, assuming you could survive again... 
it would take you over five years if you didn't stop driving one time. So to give you a scale of this thing is more massive than the sun, these objects, but they are so packed into such small volumes. And they're, that's why I say, when I say they're the most dense objects we know of besides black holes, that's the sort of numbers that I want you to, to think of. Right. Yeah. No, that's, that's a nice analogy you just made. It's, uh, there are many, many things that people, um, talk about, you know, one, one is that you, if you bring back a teaspoonful of this material, uh, back to the earth, again, if you were able to do that, it would weigh as much as a super tanker does on the earth. And so they're just these ridiculously dense objects. And I often, you know, forget that, you know, I get so wrapped up in them that, <laughs> You know, even today, after 30 years, I'm just like, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's... it's <laughs> These it's, things are just... <laughs> it's really something to, to, to think of. Um, that one always gets me, the teaspoon analogy. And I'm glad you brought it up because I remember reading, you know, like Carl Sagan's books when I was 17 or something, mm -hmm. and he would mention something along those lines. A teaspoon of neutron star material, would, would how much it would weigh here on Earth. And mm -hmm. it, it really does. It's similar to black holes in the sense that no matter how much you study them, they, you still marvel at them. You have to marvel at them. It's just the universe, you know, is so big that, that every single time we look out at the universe with a new pair of eyes, in this case it was radio telescopes, we find something magnificent, you know. And in fact, I want to bring up something that happened in 2007 that involved you in particular, mm -hmm. Duncan. Uh, you were looking at archival data. You were looking at radio data that had been studied before and had put into an archive, and you found something. Can you explain what, what it was that, that you noticed? Sure. Yeah, so so back then, that was just after we got to, to West Virginia University. So I should say that my wife is also an astronomer, and uh, so she and I were new assistant professors back then, and we were looking for projects that could you know get going quickly. Um, so we chose things where the data sets already existed, so as you mentioned, archives are becoming more and more of a part of things. And um, so the archive that I was really interested in was um, coming from the Parkes Radio Telescope in New South Wales, Australia. It's an iconic 64-meter dish that I'd spent a lot of time during my PhD. In any case, this uh, telescope had, had collected um, dozens of hours on uh, the large and small Magellanic clouds. These are the satellite galaxies um, just outside the Milky Way, and they uh, had been analyzed. Those data had been analyzed, and um, about 14 or 15 pulsars had been found in the Magellanic Cloud. So these were extragalactic pulsars. So I was very, really interested back at the time in finding more of those. Uh, and one way that I noticed hadn't been done was to just look for individual pulses uh, in the data. And there was a class of neutron stars that my wife had just discovered a few years earlier called, we call them RATS, rotating radio transients. And these give off just single pulses. Um, and they're, they're off, you often don't see the periodic lighthouse phenomenon that we've been talking about. So we just see these single events. And so we thought, well, let's, let's look for those. And so um, we got a we had all the tools that necessary to do that, to, to carry out the search for single pulses. And um, we got an undergraduate student involved in that search. Um, and sometime in, I'm just, I was just thinking about this the other day, it was early 2007. 
that um, the student David came into my office and uh, you know said, you know, I think I found something. And uh, we looked, and it was just this bright individual pulse, and it was so bright that it was a hundred times uh, greater than our detection threshold. So it was you couldn't miss it. Um, and uh, what's more, it was uh, it was very anomalous, not just because it was so bright, but it it had it showed this highly dispersed um, uh, property to it, such that the pulse, the arrival times of the pulse, would were delayed by such an amount. Um, that the pulse had to be coming from way beyond the Magellanic Clouds. It just wasn't consistent with what we would have expected. And then we looked at the data a bit more, and we realized that this pointing really shouldn't have been observed at all. It was about two degrees south of the small Magellanic Cloud. And so we'd found this sort of unrelated object that, that looked to be well beyond the, the Magellanic Cloud. And, uh, yeah, and it was just a, one of these you know, really nice serendipitous moments where you, you realize you found something that looks completely brand new. Yeah, it, it, it and now those objects, we do, at the time, we I think a lot of people were referring to them as Lorimer Bursts. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, the original one uh, was uh, nicknamed after me. And uh, yeah, so it was, it was a burst of about 10 milliseconds in duration. Uh, and then we saw nothing, no other emission from that spot in the sky. And now um, we've, uh, as a community, have found over 50 of these objects, and they're collectively they're known as fast radio bursts. Right, and and to this day we don't know a whole lot about fast radio bursts or FRBs. Is that correct? Yeah. So a decade later, um, we're we're still uh, you know hot on the trail of them. It's it's a cosmic detective story. We're, we're gathering a lot more information, um, but it's very similar. Um, if your listeners are familiar with gamma ray bursts, you know they were discovered in the late 60s, declassified from military satellites, and they became a, a mystery in the early 70s as to where where they were coming from. These gamma ray flashes all over the sky, uh, and so yeah, we've we've got a very similar mystery with the, in the radio sky now that we're tr- we're trying to solve. Right, and there's a lot of people working on this. This is this is interesting because what we have now is, a, as as Duncan mentioned, is an object out in space. We're not sure what it is. You know, there's there's probably more theories about what it is than there are actual discoveries of said object. Mm-hmm. And so we have this thing that emits. It's called a fast radio burst, and that might be the first time an astronomer actually names something intelligently. Astronomers are bad at naming things. We're not good. Pulsar is a good name, I guess. A supernova. I'm not a, a supernova is okay, but a lot of things are 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 bad, horribly mm-hmm. named. And mm-hmm. when you actually get into the study of astronomy, you realize that a lot of astronomers along the way were not good at naming things. Nomenclature is not our thing, and so, but an FRB is good. Okay, a fast radio burst, because that literally describes what it is that we're seeing. We're seeing something that's incredibly fast. I think they happen on the order of milliseconds. Right. Mm-hmm. That's right. And so we get this incredibly strong signal. That only lasts for milliseconds, and then it disappears. So we get a fast. It's in the radio is where we observe it, and it's a burst. It occurs. It's very strong. So we're looking for them. We're looking for them now. We're, we're searching for them. We've detected a lot more, as Duncan mentioned, but, but we're not sure exactly what could be. What are the prevailing like theories or models about what these things could be? Yeah, there's, so there's a bunch of them. Um, and because they're fast, they're short duration, it has to be something compact um, because the speed of light is, is finite. 
Um, and that sort of set, if you multiply the, the, t the time by the speed of light, that sets a, a size of the, the emitting region. Um, and so in this case, it's, you know, a, a few kilometers or so at most. Right. Um, and so neutron stars, the, the objects we've just been discussing, are, are prime candidates for that. They're the right size. They have the right um, combination of, of energetic properties. Uh, they have a this strong magnetic field. So there's lots of energy stored in the, the magnetic field itself and the rotation uh, of the star. And then we know that they can produce pulses. Um, so they are strongly favored. So a lot of the theories involve um, neutron stars colliding into one another or things crashing into neutron stars. Um, neutron stars which emit very um, giant pulses occasionally. Um, so all, these, all of these theories are plausible. And of course, aliens. Um, yes, right? they, the list goes on. As you mentioned, there are more theories than births. Um, and that's that's still true, even though we're finding a lot more. Yeah. So they, and then you get into to more esoteric uh, theories like um, non-stellar objects, so cosmic strings, for instance. These large-scale deformations in space-time could interact with it, with one another and produce electromagnetic pulses, and then aliens themselves. Yes. Did you when when you were looking at this data to begin with, when you first noticed this this huge spike of radio emission coming from a, an area of the sky, when you first when you found the first Lorimer burst, what went through your mind? Did 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 you ever think like, oh, I'm in the movie Contact. This is it. You know, <laughs> I found aliens. There was that wasn't right away. That the my initial thought, you know, when David brought this plot. Uh, and we sort of poured over it, it was, was I just didn't know what to make of it. It was just so out of the left field for me. Um, I it, knew that it had to be real. Right. Uh, and naturally, know, was, as, as scientists, your first inclination is to, is to doubt the actual accuracy of the, that's at least Mayan, right. Is to doubt the accuracy of the measurement itself. Was it created right. somehow? Yeah, so I knew it was a real signal of some some sort. It wasn't just a noise fluctuation. Um, so it was something real. And then the question is, as, as you say, is was it is it coming from space or was it something in our uh, measurement that uh, produced this artifact? Right. Signal? And, and um, so to, to to you know talk about that sort of thing. Yeah. You go to Green Bank often, right? Green mm -hmm. Bank, West Virginia, and and I've been there a few times and. Green Bank, West Virginia, for those of you that don't know, is the home of the Green Bank Observatory, which I don't know if the listeners know this. I, I hope they do. But when you go out in your car and you turn your radio on, what you're doing is your, your car is picking up radio emissions put off by some you know radio transmitter somewhere near the location that you live. That is really bad if you want to observe radio emissions coming from space. Okay, because while you're trying to pick up, you know, pulsars, you might be picking up 99.7. You don't want that. Okay, and so Green Bank, West Virginia, is this beautiful place in West Virginia. It's hidden deep, deep in in the state, through mid hundreds of mountains that your car might die getting over, which I thought mine was going to several times. <laughs> and it it's this it's a radio quiet zone. So you, you cannot have, you know, if you like, if you use your, if you live there and you use your microwave for too long, they'll come knocking on your door, you know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So, and of yes, course they've done that to me. Have they really? <laughs> yeah. I left, I had a Bluetooth connection on my MacBook and I'd left it on 
from you know being in Morgantown, and they found that signal. Yeah, they have a they have a. <laughs> I remember when I was there, they have this uh, this like investigative squad, you know, like a couple people who are who work full time, and they have this like really awesome investigative van truck type thing yep. with a bunch of radio antennas and stuff on it. And they, mm-hmm. their their job is to seek out any and all radio emission that could be messing with the signal of of the the telescopes. That's right. Yeah, no, they're they're incredibly good at it. And then they have to liaise with the community to you know come up with a solution to whatever um, problem it is. Uh, and it's you know it's a really is a, it's a it's a full time job. Yeah, it's I when clean. when I was there, I remember that they were uh, in the midst of cleaning up some some mess that was made by the uh, the Fish and Game Commission of West Virginia. the The Fish and Game Commission had tagged several squirrels in the area in order to try to understand breeding patterns, mm-hmm. and because they were seeing a decrease in population, so they wanted to understand why. And so they had tagged these squirrels with radio transmitters. Not knowing, not realizing the implications of doing such a thing, and so these these people they had to physically hunt down the squirrels. Okay, in some cases maybe killing them to to take these transmitters off because it was messing with the signal in in the telescopes. Right. Yeah. yeah so they're they're just that sensitive. These telescopes. That's right. Yeah, and I, I encourage anyone listening definitely take a trip to Green Bank. It's uh, you know if if you're not going there as a scientist, you're going to have a tough time finding a hotel. But that's because I think maybe 12 people live near that area and they've been there. Some of them still think the civil war is being fought because no one has told them otherwise yet. <laughs> it's a little bit. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's not far from that. Yes. It's so, it's so very remote. It, it's a beautiful it's, spot. It's absolutely gorgeous. How is Morgantown in relation to that? I, I haven't been. Is um, it still very remote? It's pretty remote. Yeah. I mean, we're, uh, it's, it's a college town, so there's um, thirty or forty thousand permanent residents, and then some, you know thirty thousand students. Um, so it's a small town, and then once you get out of the city limits, you're in rural West Virginia, and it's very very beautiful, and it looks a lot like Greenbank actually. It's, uh, yeah, yeah, it is a it is. I I really adore the the mountains of West Virginia. I mm-hmm. really enjoy driving to Greenbank for that reason, mm-hmm. yeah. because it's. That there's not a lot of places on the East Coast where you can see nature that is undisturbed, right? right. Humans yeah. have very much mm-hmm. taken hold of the East Coast. I love the Midwest for that That reason is that humans mm-hmm. just haven't been. And it's probably because there's grizzly bears or, you know, wolves <laughs> or something that humans yeah. haven't been there. But right, it, right. it's nice to go somewhere where we haven't, you know, completely destroyed everything. Yeah. But so it, now Green Bank, the Green Bank Telescope is one of the coolest things that I've ever seen, too. It's... Mm-hmm. Is it still the largest movable radio telescope? I don't know. That is that is true. Yeah, it's the largest fully steerable telescope. Yes, it's uh, it's it's like uh, this. It, I can't even describe how big it is. I can't. I don't know how to describe. Do you have figures? Uh, I, I always forget the exact number. It's the size of two football fields, something like that. Yeah, it's it's giant. It's, look up. Do, yeah, do yourself a favor and look up. To scale, you know, you have like a van in front or something, a picture of the Green Bank Telescope. It's just mm-hmm. marvelous. It's mesmerizing. It's similar height to the Statue of Liberty. Yes, and yeah. it, and um, it's an, I've I was there a couple times to watch it move. You know, because it doesn't point at the same place in the sky all day, 
people submit proposals and and I know this is actually changing the way that they they do it because mm-hmm. is the Green Bank Telescope like being defunded or something of the sort? Well, you know, its its funding profile is being compressed, let's say, and so we're having to find ways of funding it outside of what we call open skies time, which is funded by the U.S. government. So for one example is that um, our university here, WBU, is uh, committing uh, about the level of $100,000 a year to, to buy time on the telescope. Yeah, and I know that some of the other efforts, may, not necessarily with the Green Bank Telescope, but some of the other telescopes at the facility, the smaller ones. I remember when I was there, you know, several years ago, my tour guide was telling me that they're selling a lot of the time on those telescopes to to people who are, are hunting SETI or the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And mm-hmm. so that because that's one of the ways that we <clears throat> expect to find other intelligent right. life. Uh, what were the first things that human beings transmitted into the into the universe at large it was radio waves you know Mm -hmm. tvs and i love lucy and things i think what what was the first i feel like the first ever radio transmission was was a speech given by hitler is that right yeah it's it's things of that nature i think yeah yeah and so that's not good if an intelligent species is out there (laughs) if an intelligent species is out there listening in on us the the first things that they will receive from us are you know speeches given by hitler and other leaders and during world war ii yeah which is unfortunate but nevertheless we do do that our, our planet is one giant radio beacon because we're constantly mm-hmm. using radio waves to That's right and so if we expect you know intelligent life to be out there somewhere well maybe they're doing the same thing and that's why we use radio telescopes to try to find aliens although i don't think that that effort is supported by government funds no anymore. so it's, it's the breakthrough foundation that are funding a lot of the time on on the telescope right now yeah, and so you, you found incredible things in archival data. Mm-hmm. What, do you think there are things out there just waiting to be found, other things? Maybe not in, in radio data, but in, in across the spectrum. What are your thoughts on that sort of thing? Yeah, I, I absolutely do. I mean, it's, you know, with hindsight now, you can kind of look back on the discovery of fast radio bursts and, you know, possibly have predicted it. Um, but at the time, uh, I think the the way that I set up uh, made the conditions favorable for the discovery is just well being ignorant really I I I, I was searching the data as uh, as widely as possible for these pulses as it turns out the pulses that I was actually trying to detect from these rats that we were talking about briefly they would they would actually be too weak to be to be seen so I would never have actually seen those anyway and so you know I was just doing this this experiment and looking at the sky in a new way. And and that's right. Right now we are across the electromagnetic spectrum and now in gravitational waves, we are looking at the universe in new ways every day. So there is absolutely um, a lot of discovery space, as we call it, that's wide open. And I think in, in particular in in this transient domain, you know, where we're talking about sh- looking for short duration signals, that are just hard to see because they're not on very often. Uh, I, I'm sure that FRBs will not be the last word in those. Um, yeah, so you've been studying, how long have you been studying pulsars? So I started at uh, University of Manchester at Jodrell Bank in 1990, so about 28 years. And that was before I was born. Wow, <laughs> that is a career, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. So 
during your time in, in the in the world of pulsars, mm-hmm. how much has our understanding changed in what was it twenty eight years? Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Twenty eight yep. years. Yep. How much has our understanding of these objects changed in that time? Well, our basic understanding uh, is about the same. You know, we still believe that they're rotating neutron stars. Um, we've gone from a situation where there were only about 400 of them when I first started, and now there's about two and a half thousand or more of them that are that are currently known. Um, yeah, so that so that's been a big step, and so. Uh, what we've really found along the way are lots of like oddball objects. Like we found a lot of rare pulsars. So you can you can think of the pulsar population like a zoo. You know there are lots of like um, perhaps boring animals that you see a lot of, and then you know and then you'll get into like the snake pit or whatever, and you'll see these really cool snakes and, and things like that. So it's a bit like that with pulsars that there are there are just a few really weird ones. Uh, and just the simple fact of having found more and more of them over the last 30 plus years has just led to these oddball discoveries. So one particular example I can just go into is um, about, when would it be, be about 2003, 2004, um, I was involved in the discovery of what we call a double pulsar system. So two pulsars orbiting one another, um, where, you know, when we talked about double neutron star systems, um, with you know in gravitational waves, but this this particular system we could see both of the pulsar lighthouses um, shining towards us, and that was just a fascinating object to dis- to discover and to to get involved in. It was just unlike anything else that we'd seen at that point. That is, and and have we only discovered one of these today? So there are. Uh, there's only one like like that where the two pulsars are, are potentially visible. Uh, there's about 20 plus systems now where we we're pretty sure that there are two neutron stars and we see only one of them as a pulsar. Yeah. Yes, and there there may be systems as well where you know you only have one neutron star, maybe a black hole, and so you wouldn't be seeing you would be seeing right. emissions from only one object uh, when in fact right. there may be two. And mm-hmm. yes, it. What, what can you give us another example of like a, a real <laughs> yeah oddball? so so one very interesting one that uh, one of my graduate students found about ten years ago now it would have been a green bank uh, in one of these uh, surveys that we do with that telescope uh, was a triple system so a pulsar one pulsar um, but having two other stars in orbit around it. And these two other stars turn out to be um, different white dwarfs. And so for your listeners, a white dwarf is about this, um, the size of the Earth. So it's, it's like just down in density from a pulsar. It's about the size of the Earth, and it can be up to um, a typical white dwarf mass is perhaps a three-quarters of a, the mass of the sun. They can, be, they can be up to 1.4 times the mass of the sun. So they're also pretty, pretty awesome objects. Um, to study, they have very exotic properties and create strong gravitational fields. And so we had a pulsar with two white dwarfs. And so what, what it is, and if you guys uh, want to Google pulsar triple system, you, you can quickly see a little um, cartoon of this. It's, it's a pulsar and a white dwarf in an inner orbit. Um, and, then a, and then the outer orbit um, is, is the other white dwarf going around the two. So you have uh, a really cool situation there. You you kind of have the the inner orbit is falling 
in the presence of the outer orbit. So it's it's a little bit like uh, you know you've seen those movies of the uh, sorry the, the the videos of um, the Apollo landings where they drop a feather and a yes. and a brick. Uh, it's a little bit like that where you have two different objects falling uh, in the gravitational field of a third body. Um, and so it's allowed us to do uh, high precision tests of uh, what we call the the equivalence principle. Uh, and that, one of the fundamental um, tenets of Einstein's theory. Yeah, that is that is really cool. Now, is that that can't be a stable system, can it? It is. It yeah, is. It, yeah, it's it's not going to decay on any any observable time scale. So it's, that's yeah, that's very. And these are the types of things that get, you know people listening. Here's here's what's important to understand. Um, as we study as we study astronomy more, as we look at the sky more. One of the things that's important to understand is how vast the universe is. Okay, we we have what it's an estimate for the number of stars in our galaxy, maybe two, maybe hundreds of billions, we could say. Yeah, so something like yeah, ten to the eleven stars. That's right. Yeah, uh, so we we have hundreds of billions of stars in our galaxy, just the Milky Way galaxy. And here's what's important to note: the Milky Way galaxy is by no means a large galaxy. There are much larger galaxies out there. We 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 occupy a spiral galaxy. And there are elliptical galaxies with many, many more stars. And not only are there elliptical galaxies with many, many more stars, but there are more galaxies in the observable universe than there are stars in our in our galaxy. So you have a population which is astronomical, literally astronomical. Mm-hmm. You have a population that is so big that any oddball you could feasibly come up with in your mind probably exists somewhere in our observable universe. That's right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we, we identify these these oddballs. And it might be the case that I, that finding one of these is more rare than winning the lottery, right? That, <laughs> what, what was that? What was the Powerball? Was it a Powerball that was recently won? Like $1.6 billion or something? Oh, that's right. Yeah. I wouldn't mind winning that. Okay. I, I would. <laughs> in fact, I think I would take that over discovering a new astronomical object. Maybe I just don't. Maybe I value money more than I value science, but <laughs> come on, you know. I'm sensing a bit of a pattern here. <laughs> yes. I, you know, I just want like $1.6 billion dropped on right. me sometime. When you're a graduate student, you know, like sure. one dollars $1. sounds good to you. Right. Right. Or like maybe like $1.6 would even be nice. (laughs) So, but even if the odds are greater for you to win the lottery than discover one of these objects, chances are you will find these objects. You still will just because of the amount of stars that we have to look at, you know? And now we have a, a, a spacecraft called Gaia. Gaia is a spacecraft that is, is essentially just counting stars. Right, it's doing other things, but we could say that it's just counting stars near us. And I encourage you to go look at the magnitude of stars that Gaia finds. The and and for ast- astronomers, I don't mean magnitude as in the quantity. I mean the the literal magnitude of the amount of stars that that we're finding just within our stellar neighborhood. It's mesmerizing. It's mesmerizing. Yep. And so when we look out, and and you look at the types of things you look at, or I look at the types of things I look at. We're always going to find real weird shit mm-hmm. because there's just so much stuff for us to look at. Yeah, that's right. And that's you know that's one of the draws of astronomy for me is that you know you can be you can you can make a difference um, 
right from the get-go, just because there's so many things uh, that are potentially out there. If you just have an open mind and to just be determined, um, you, you'll sooner or later you'll find something. Yeah, and and that's true on the observer side. So if you're using telescopes to look at the sky, but it's mm-hmm. equally true on the theoretical side, right? Mm-hmm. You could probably, I mean, even you as a civilian listening out there. If you're not in science, you could probably think up some wacky configuration of objects in the, in the universe. And, and chances are, if you're not being too outlandish, we could find that system, you know? If you want to find three black holes orbiting around one another, that, that is probably exists. And it's only a matter of time before we come up with the technology to discover it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so it's, it, it really is, it, that is one of the draws of astronomy for me, of, of studying the, the universe at large is that it's, it almost feels like I'll never not have a job. You know, at times right. it feels like I'll, I'll definitely not have a job, <laughs> but at the same time, it feels like I'll never not have something to study. Right. Because we can never, like, we can't possibly. All right. So if you're an NFL commentator, right, your season comes to an end eventually. It just does. In astronomy, the season doesn't end. It never ends because there's <laughs> always going to be things for you to look at. There's always going to be things for you to study, right? And the and the uh, the other side of being an astronomer, I would say, is that your brain never shuts off either. You know, five o'clock comes and you go home um, like everybody else, but you're still thinking about these things. And you know, you're um, you're an astronomer sort of twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. Yes, and that's true. I th- I think that's true for most people who are at the top of the game and whatever it is that they do. Right. Mm-hmm. If you're a, if you're a, that I've actually, I think that's probably a measure of, of whether or not you are invested. Because if you're an MMA fighter, right? If you're at the top of, of, if you're a champion, if you're a two division champion, what have you, uh-huh. you probably always think about it. Uh-huh. Always. Right. Right. If, if you're an NFL player, it's always on your mind. Um, my brain always goes to sports for some, isn't it interesting? My brain always goes to sport, <laughs> always goes to sports and money. Always. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm not invested enough or maybe I need to be invested into. So for anyone out there listening, I do accept donations. Um, But yeah, so, you know, it's, it's true that, that it's always, we're always thinking about it. We're always daydreaming about it. It's always on our mind. And, and that's just a measure of, of how invested we are in what it is that we do. And, I think astronomers across the board, physicists across the board, probably biologists, chemists, whatever, yeah. they probably feel the exact same way. I'm sure that's the same. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. And so one of the things when I was sort of like, you know, looking into to you and and the types of things you study, I, I knew of you before, but I was looking more into your, your life on the Internet because we can uh-huh. do that now. Yeah, right. Um, I noticed something really interesting about something that you and your wife do and that is that you correct me if I'm maybe I'm wrong but you try to get high school students involved in research mm-hmm. that's right um, so that also happened since we got to uh, West Virginia and a colleague of ours at Greenbank Sue Ann Heatherly um, kind of approached us shortly after we got here and really encouraged us with this idea of getting high school students to look at pulsar data. So to take data from the GBT and other telescopes uh, and and search for these pulsars. And so we thought we thought it was uh, just too much at first. 
Uh, but the more and more we uh, we discussed it and 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 just dis- discussed how we could operate it, we we realised that it really wasn't that that hard to engage the, the students and teach teach them enough um, astronomy to to be dangerous, so to speak, and then um, then just give them the data and, and just have them look at the data and, and see what they could find. So we've been doing that since 2008, so the last 10 years. Uh, we get go, – go ahead. Do you think that that helps encourage them to come into this field? Uh, yes. It's, you know, cer- certainly, um, you know, organically we've seen local students come to WVU. We've seen a, we've seen a big in- increase uh, in the female enrollment in our undergraduate physics program because of that. The, the population of students that we work with is, is pretty much 50-50, male to female. Um, so that's been really good. Um, I really feel that this is vital. What you're doing is is sh- mm-hmm. something that should be being done across the board. The public education system, uh, when it comes to high school in particular, is broken in my wor- in my mind. In my mm-hmm. mind, it is it is not a good way to to educate children, to educate young adults. I don't think it, it's effective because. There's a point I, I calculated this recently. It's insane the amount of hours that you sit in a classroom throughout your your mm-hmm. high school years. It, these are formative moments for you. These are moments where you, you shouldn't just be sitting there and like, man, I can think of all the the moments I spent in high school doing absolutely nothing. Right. Like just doing nothing, and it was mm-hmm. by design too. Yeah. It's, it's right, not right. like it's not like I chose to not do anything. Yeah. I mean, there were certainly those moments where I chose to not do anything, and I and you could get away with that. And yeah. the fact that you could get away with that is is an indication that the system doesn't work very well. But yep. uh, more so, there were a lot of moments where I wasn't doing anything simply because they had nothing to fill the time. You know, you're there for what, eight hours a day, and they need to fill that time. Well, there's frankly, the human brain I don't think can learn for eight hours a day effectively. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's even possible. I don't right. know if the brain can take in new information and actually retain it all for eight straight hours a day. So in an, in essence, you, you almost have to have downtime. Mm-hmm. That's important. Yeah. And I think physical education is, is an important aspect of that in schools. But more importantly, like these, these kids, unfortunately, I feel that they're wasting a lot of the formative years of their life. And when they leave high school, they leave with a lot of confusion because they don't know what it is that they even want to do. They haven't learned that. Right. You know, they've been right. taught, they've been told that they, they need to know these fundamental skills, yep. but then they're not taught, well, wait, where do I apply these skills? What do I actually use them to do? Mm-hmm. You know, and so you have a right, lot of confusion. Right. You have a lot of kids going to college that maybe shouldn't be going to college because they could have very fruitful careers doing something else. Yes. You know, and they're convinced that they should be in, in college. And right. colleges, of course, take advantage of this because they love money. And me too. You know, if you're out there right. and you're part of a college, yeah, like I said earlier, donate the money to me, you know, from these people. <laughs> but, and so what you do, I think, is something that should be done much more frequently. Involving these kids in, in something, something yep. feasible is, is very important. Yeah, and it and it shows them how to synthesize all of the things that they're learning in the classroom. You know, the 
the mathematical skills that they've had, the computer skills, and just the well, the just presentation skills. It all, all comes you know into into it. So we get the students to come to Green Bank. We spend a, a week or two with them each summer, and then they just go back to their schools and form science clubs. And so they have, they they use some of this time that you were talking about. In a different way, you know, they're they're sitting and working in groups and looking at the data for themselves. So we give them. We don't look at the data at all. We do, we just, you know, that, that's your part of the sky. You know, that we let them take ownership of it, and that's that's been really important. Yes, and and you know, I think about my own high school history, and and when I was coming out of high school, I was very much on the fence about whether or not I could even do this. You know. I had almost like mediocrity had almost been like breeded into me through or you know molded mm-hmm. into me through yep. through high school like that you know you shouldn't sh- strive it's almost as if they teach you to be mediocre mm-hmm. you know it's like when they when they ask you what you want to be when you grow up you're you're confined to only a certain amount of answers and if you if you give an answer that's outside of those confinements then you you almost get looked at sideways like wait a minute you right. want to be an astrophysicist you can't do that <laughs> Right, you right. can't come out of this high school and be an astrophysicist. That's not going to work. And so if something like that existed for me, that would have seriously, seriously built my confidence to be able to actually right. go forward with something I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Now, have you been back to your school? I've been back. Uh, I, I have been back, but I haven't been back and talked to students. Uh, my mm-hmm. My school, I have a lot of angst towards. I always say I will be successful in spite of my high school, uh-huh. um, and and part of that's on me because when I was a, I didn't grow up in a good environment. I didn't grow up in a good place. Um, I didn't. I wasn't. I wasn't fully there. Mm-hmm. And so when I was, you know, between the ages of twelve and sixteen, I was. I would call myself a drug addict. I very uh-huh. much was. It's amazing that I'm in the position I'm in. It's amazing. I don't. It's fantastic. I, yeah. I still look back and I don't understand how it happened. Right. right. I just don't. And for me, the what you're doing with those students, I sort of had to do on my own, right? And I did mm-hmm. that through through books. I remember, like, I didn't have my family, you know, didn't have the means maybe to buy buy me, you know, tens of books. So if you're an author out there and you're listening, whether you're Carl Sagan or Brian Greene or something, I would have to illegally download these books. <laughs> using using you know the internet and and I would read them I remember I would read them on a smartphone that was like I don't know like the cheapest smartphone you could imagine buying at Walmart and I would read <laughs> the books on the screen so you know each book would be like 4000 pages because there's only a few words on each page <laughs> and those were like the the moments that that influenced me to you know tackle this project and kudos to them because what they did was they convinced me that this was easy because they right. they explained it so well that they made me think like oh I could do that now in reality yeah. it's not easy but sure. had but had I not had that yeah. like convincing I maybe wouldn't have actually tried to to pursue that it. is yeah that is a very good point you need you need to draw people in uh, to get to get them there uh, so there's that first step of in whatever it is you people will often just psych themselves out and um, they'll, they'll convince themselves already that they can't do something. And yeah, Brian yes. Green, his, his writings, they're just so compelling. I, I've, I've read them myself a lot. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think there's, there's no substitute for that. If you can, if you can get somebody in to whatever it is you're trying to do, um, you know, in the high school program, that, that's what we do. And then we just sort of, we, we're not, trying to train them to be astrophysicists per se but we're just 
just trying to show people that the options that are out there for them. And um, so, yeah, we've seen tremendous gains and just, just from doing this. Yeah, it, it's, it's very, it's very important. I think just what you just said is very important. You're not you're not convincing them that they need to go into astrophysics, but what you're convincing them is that the skills that they've acquired can be used to do great things. Right. And if you're not having someone in your ear when you're a teenager telling you that, if mm-hmm. someone's not if you don't have a supporter, it's really mm-hmm. hard to realize that on your own. It's really hard to come to the conclusion that you have the skills, that you have the ability, that you have the the passion to achieve something great. And so if someone's not there whispering that to you time after time after time, it's really easy to to decide that, you know, maybe you should go to college, not really try that hard, graduate, right. get get a job that pays, mm-hmm. you know, $43,000 a year and and kind of just mm-hmm. settle down and, and, and right, right. you know, into misery, essentially. So what you do, I think should be done more. I've, I've already stressed that a lot, but I, I think it should be done by every field. I think, yeah. in fact, I thought a lot about sort of high school reform in general. And I don't know if grades 9 through 12 should even really be sitting sitting in class the way that they do. Mm-hmm. I think I would like to see an environment where maybe like half the year is invested in classwork because you don't need the full year to teach the kids the things they're learning. You don't. It's, a, it's, right. it's truthfully a waste of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember like you know, sitting in, I don't know, trigonometry or something. And the amount of days that would just be wasted, you know, working on nonsense, right? working on just sort of like reinforcing skills that everyone already knows. Yeah. And so if you could condense that to half a year and then actually give these kids a chance to explore something that they want to explore, whether that be astrophysics, give them that outlet, say, oh, you want to go work with Duncan? He's studying radio astronomy down at Green Bank, West Virginia, and allow that to count as, as, as coursework. Uh, don't make them come to school every day and sit in a desk where they're they're not being fulfilled as human beings. You know, let, wait, and even if it's like right, this kid wants to be a mechanic, good. Mm-hmm. Set up a program where he can That's go right. learn the fundamentals of being a mechanic. Because if you don't instill that in them, you you're going to lose a lot of people to the tribu- tribulations of society. I think. Right. Right. No, it's and it's it's tough because you know we're doing it kind of like as a side project. So, um, you know, it's, it's a lot of our time that goes into it, but you know, in, in the, at the end of the day, it's, it's time well spent you it, know, when you, when you see the gains in, in students. Do you think it would make it a lot easier if you had some form of, um, you know, funding from the federal government for this sort of thing? Well, so it's, so to be fair, we are funded uh, to do this. So it's not that, um, you know, that we're not, it's just, it's time that we take, you know, we take away from. Um, working with, you know, working on our own science. Right. But, so, it's, but it's time well spent. Yes, yes. So do you think it would be beneficial if, similar to the way that colleges, I mean, I'm sure WVU has this, uh-huh. I know every college I've been to, has a career services sort of department, right? Yep. People who are devoted to making sure that when you graduate, you can find employment somewhere. I think it would be beneficial if high schools hired someone similar that, that, that sat down with you and the guidance counselor, I guess, is supposed to do this, but they're generally, from my experience, not good at it. Sit down with you and ensure that the, you can do the thing that you want to do in the formative years of your life. So, you know, if you go to them and you say, I want to study radio astronomy, well, they have a connection. They can call you up. They can say, listen, I have a student. He's interested. Um, and and how do kids even get involved in this? What, what do they do? They have to reach out to you. Um, so initially, we started it in West Virginia, uh, and so our 
you know this this colleague of ours, Sue Ann Heatherly. She has been in. She's an education specialist yeah, at I, Green Bank. I know her. She's actually yeah, the okay. person who gave me all of the tour guides when I was. Uh, all yeah, the she's awesome. Yes, she's absolutely great. So she has a lot of contacts within West Virginia. So we we put out the word to West Virginia schools uh, for the first couple of years, and then we kind of ran out of teachers. Uh, we 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 because it's a commitment for the teachers as well. Exactly. They have to come to Green Bank for two weeks of their summer, and you know we pay them, um, but still, it's time time for them as well out of the summer and so we quickly had to then reach out to other states and so we've we've got into at, at this point i think about 20 states uh and 200 schools something like that of, across the country and you just uh, and you bring them out to to west virginia in the summer i, I presume? yeah so there's there's basically two like points of contact in the there's, there's one around july each year in, at green bank where they come out and they they get lectures from us and you know they do all these other activities as well um, and just just learn the craft in, in a short period period of time, and then um, they spend the rest of their year back at the school in a club. But then they come out. Many of them will come to WVU if they can for you know what we call a capstone um, presentation, where they uh, where they'll they'll present their work over the summer, and you know we'll give them tours of of the the college. And so for a lot of them, we're not you know, again we're not trying to necessarily get them to come to WVU, although. It's, it, it happens that way, but it, it's to give them exposure to what it's like to be a college student, you know, and, and yeah. totally it's still that. Yeah, we're, we need to, we're, we're going to have to talk off air about it because I would love to get this set up in some some schools that, that I went to. I think this would be beneficial yeah. for, I know that, you know, West Virginia and Pennsylvania have a, a real problem with, with mm-hmm. poverty. Uh, we, mm-hmm. you know, the, the sort of middle of the, middle of the East, if you will. Yeah. Uh, in in Ohio too is is a very impoverished area, and because of that, you see a lot of kids that don't graduate. I know I live in Rochester, New York, right now, and we have the lowest rate of African American males graduating high school than anywhere else in the country. I think it's nine percent. Wow, nine percent of African American males are graduating from high school here. That's a real problem. Yeah, and 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 part of the problem is is schools not not instilling in them actual skills you know they feel mm-hmm. that they feel that they their time could be better spent maybe on the streets working whether it be a part-time job whether it be selling drugs right. whether it be in a gang whatever you know it, whatever it is they decide that that their time outside is more fruitful than their time inside mm-hmm. and some of them probably aren't wrong because they're just not in an environment where they feel like they can get ahead in the world right right so yeah, we'll have to talk because I'd love. I'd Absolutely, lo- I'd yeah. love to get that set up if I if I could, whatever I, you know I want to do my part. Sure. I, I was thinking about this earlier to get off the talk you know track of high schools, even though I could probably talk about it all day. Are you familiar <laughs> with the Wow Signal? Yes. Yes. Okay. Can you can you? I don't know much about the Wow Signal. Okay. Um, and I w- was curious. What came to my mind? This is maybe maybe this is um you know not a good question, and maybe you'll explain why. But I'm curious, could the wow signal have been in some way related to an FRB? Um, yeah, so let's just sort of describe briefly what it is. And so this is a signal that was found in the 70s at a telescope in Ohio that is no longer in existence. Um, and they were scanning the skies um, in the radio. Um, and uh, I'm not exactly sure what frequency they were at, but it was well above the FM band and it was – it was around a thousand gigahertz, sorry, a thousand megahertz, about a gigahertz. Anyway, 
um, they found uh, this, they were basically just, just sitting there waiting for the earth to turn. Well, it's, it's always turning, but <laughs> waiting right. for the sky to go, yeah. go, go through the field of view of the telescope and just scanning the sky that way. Um, and so they, they saw a, a, a signal that, that rose and fall, um, and it was on a time scale much longer than the FRBs. I think it was about, I got a copy of it recently, I think it was about tens of seconds, so maybe, maybe not quite that long, but it was way more than milliseconds. Um, and it, it came and went, and then it, it was never seen again. And it wasn't just a radio source that they were scanning over that they would see every day. This was something transient. Um, and it's never really been properly explained. Part of the, part of the problem is that the data acquisition uh, equipment that they had really was, didn't allow them to look at it in great detail like we can with, with the pulsars and the FRBs. Um, so it, it remains something of an anomaly. I think there's, if you sort of scan the internet, you'll find theories about it, um, that it could be related to um, communication systems and, and things like that. So it's, but it's, it's basically, you know, and it's one of these sort of beacons that's often um, quoted by the SETI community as, you know, as a potential, a possible sign from ET. Yeah. But I, but it's, it's cool. It's just, a, it's just un unresolved at this point and probably always will be yes it is uh and it gets the name wow signal i think because the 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 astronomer (laughs) looking at it at the time wrote wow on the paper that's right yeah he sort of circled the the little yes this was back in the day where our you know our our radio i don't know if you want to call it a a, i almost call it a spectrograph but that's probably not what you you call it so like maybe a, a representation of the signal that you get it was literally printed out on a piece of paper, I believe, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It would be this, like, this, like, it looked like a rolling pin that was being etched on yeah. as you scanned across the sky. And I remember when I was in Green Bank, I utilized one of the old telescopes that they had mm-hmm. that literally did that. Yeah. It, you know, it still does the sort of etching on a piece of paper. And then you take the piece of paper and you, you physically have it. It's not on a computer. You don't analyze the data, you know, in, in, in a computer program. It's physically drawn out on a piece of paper. And right. So I, you know, he wrote wow on it. <laughs> so to this day, it's, it's not determined what it is. I know I saw maybe last year that astronomers thought that they had discovered it was related to a comet. And then oh, this that's year, right. yeah. this yeah. year I saw a paper saying that that has been disproved. So it's, you know, it's, it's very much up in the air. So if yeah. you're out there and you're, you're curious, look up the wow signal, and maybe try to come to some conclusions. Yeah. But, but again, it's something that, and maybe you're about to say this that it's tough to really study. It is, and it, it but it could be um, the prototype of something that we just haven't really um, spent much time looking at in detail. So you know we've talked about the transient sky on the millisecond uh, regime, but you know maybe there are there are interesting things going on on times longer time scales that we just that was just happened to be scraping the surface of. Right. Uh, so you know, as the as the telescopes improve and they and they constantly are, we'll maybe maybe get a handle on that. I should just say that we recently, we the scientists scientific community recently found the slowest rotating pulsar, uh, and it's got a period of of over twenty seconds. So once every twenty seconds, this thing spins, which is still ridiculously fast when you think about these neutron stars. But but for a pulsar, it's 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 quite a 
a sedentary yeah, <laughs> member it, of the community. So that that it, that is, I have I had not heard of that, and that yeah, is very interesting. It just goes to show, though, that that time scale hasn't really been probed very well at this point. That's yeah, I hadn't thought about that, and that's uh, actually a, an interesting point, a good point. Now I know that based off your your wife actually, I believe, is giving a talk at at the school that I go to. That's Monday. right. She's she's yes. headed out there. Yeah. Yes. So so she'll be up here now. She works on pulsar timing arrays. Do you also work on this? I do, but not to the extent that she does. I'm involved in the project. Um, she is currently one of the leaders of it. Uh, what it's a. Um, a scientific organization called Nanograv, the North American Nanohertz Observatory for Gravitational Waves. And so basically it's it's doing in space what the gravitational wave, uh, the ground-based gravitational wave um, guys do with LIGO and um, Virgo to, to detect these, these high-frequency signals. Uh, with pulsars, we're we're trying to detect very low frequency gravitational waves from the mergers um, of uh, galaxies in the earlier universe. So the black holes at the center of those galaxies would would produce a background of gravitational waves that we're trying to detect with pulsars. Yes, and so uh, to try to explain this to the to the people listening, how this can be done, I, I'll, yep. I'll give you a, an analogy that I often use. And if you're actually involved in, you know, detecting gravitational waves, you might hate this. But for the general public, I think this is good. The way that we detect gravitational waves is if you can imagine two people walking down a, a hallway and you know that they're constrained to the exact same speed. They have to walk at the same speed. And they're walking down identical length hallways. You would come to the conclusion that they should get to the end of the hallway at the exact same time. That's the conclusion that you should come to. Now, what if one of them gets there faster? What if you're standing at the end of the hallway and all of a sudden Bob shows up, you know, but Heather has not showed up yet? You say, wait a minute, either Bob moved faster than he's supposed to, but that can't happen because Bob is constrained to move at this one speed. He cannot move any faster. He cannot move any slower. You might come to the conclusion that the space that Bob traveled through is a smaller space than the space that Heather traveled through. And that is exactly what a gravitational wave does, is it makes the space through which Bob travels ever so slightly tinier. Okay, I think it's on the order of like the the, the much smaller than the width of a proton. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, we detect it. And what we do is we're not using people walking down hallways, we're using light. We know that light has to travel at one speed in a vacuum, one speed only. And so if we detect that light is reaching the end of the hallway before light emitted down another hallway, we must come to the conclusion that the space through which that light traveled is shorter. And the way in which space gets compressed is through a gravitational wave, a literal wave that compresses the space that it travels through. Now, you don't feel that, and I don't feel that, because again, it's on the order of the width of a proton, okay? Much smaller than the width of a proton. And so... We're not walking through life and all of a sudden our heads get elongated or our legs get longer. That doesn't happen, okay? We can't detect it with our physical beings, but we can detect it with very sensitive detectors. And we use pulsars to do something like that. We use pulsars to try to detect gravitational waves moving through space because we know that those pulses are going to come at us regularly timed, every time. And if we notice that, wait a minute, you know, I'm going to exaggerate a little bit. If we're getting pulses every 20 seconds and then all of a sudden we get one 19 seconds later, we're going to be a little 
conspicuous. We're going to be concerned. Mm-hmm. Like, why, why did that happen? And maybe the reason it happened is because a gravitational wave was compressing the light between us and the pulsar, compressing the space, rather, between us and the pulsar. And so I hope, if you're listening, I hope that that makes sense to you. It is much, much more complex than that. Okay, I should say that. But nevertheless, this analogy, I think, is very helpful. Yeah, I, I think that, that gets the basic gist of it across very well. And so we, we, we utilize pulsars for all sorts of things because they're so regularly timed. We know that, that they should not change. If one pulse is coming at us every 20 seconds, it probably is going to stay that way for the length of our human life, unless something really, really weird is going on. And, and we use that fact to try to detect weird things going on. It's, it's very helpful, and it's one of the things that astronomers just do ingeniously. We're very good at coming up with clever ways to do things, and that's one of them. And so I credit your wife for that. And I would like to have her on the show sometime, actually. Oh, I'm sure she'd be delighted yeah, to, I, to, to join I'll you. I have to set that up. Um, yeah. Now, I want to change gears a little bit because you do something else that's very interesting to me. You're a musician. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about this? Sure, I'd love to. Yeah. So um, when did you start ahead. playing music? Oh well, I first my first uh, musical experiences came as a as a child when I was about eight years old. I, I studied violin for about five years, something like that. My, my wife um, has played violin for I don't know how old is she. She's played violin for probably twenty years now. Uh huh. Yeah, pretty much her whole life. So yes. Yeah. But, so and you know, ironically, I I end up here in West Virginia and surrounded by awesome fiddle players. And I kind of, every day I said, if I'd only just kept it going, I could have, could have joined them. <laughs> oh yeah. And you could probably offer to, you know, if you go in the, in the woods of, of West Virginia, you might be able to buy one of those old fiddles for like six bucks. Cause they don't yeah. know, they don't know the value of money down there. Right. So they'll just, they'll sell Maybe. you like a, a million dollar fiddle for a couple dollars. So you could, you know, I might come down there and do that actually. Yeah. Yeah. Idea. For sure. But, but uh, that's where it started. Um, and that, yeah, so I gave up the violin when I was about uh, 13 or 14, something like that. Uh, but yeah, when I was about 17, I, I, a friend of mine showed me a guitar and I, I just got hooked um, from that instant by, by the guitar and uh, how you had this instrument that you could, you know, it, it was portable. You could play it in so many different styles and ways. And, um, you know, I... I and I just got into, you know, it, it, back then I was into things like, you know, Led Zeppelin and, and that, that type of, you know, heavy rock music. But then I, I got into the blues through that. And then I eventually got uh, found found jazz. And that, that's been really a lifelong passion, just just trying to use the guitar to, um, to you know, express my musical self, um, but often in that in that style is, you know, so, so my heroes are, you know, jazz guitarists these days. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird for me to even think about learning a skill and not having the internet. You're right. I, I, because I don't, maybe it's, you know, it's definitely telling my age, but I'm like, wait a minute, you learn to play the guitar without the internet. What, what, what tutorials did you watch? You know, I, like it, it is truly like puzzling to me at times. So, yeah, I wish I'd had it uh, in many ways. It would have, would have made life a lot easier. And, and, and of course, you know, you never stop learning it, you know, a skill really. And it, with guitar for me, it's still, it's still an ongoing process. So I'm glad it's here now. Back you, then, it was through. He was using books, and I never got, I never got formal lessons for for many years, actually, um, which is probably you, a big mistake. Would you call yourself a professional? <laughs> 
in my dreams I do, but okay. uh, at best I'm a semi-pro. I couldn't make a living out of it. I'm so lucky that I get to do what I do. You know, in my, um, you know, I, I, I have a full-time job and and I get to play music. So I, I get to play. Yeah, I, I play a lot of gigs, but I, I couldn't. Um, I couldn't imagine making a living out of it, um, even though I'd love to. Yeah. So who who. You mentioned Led Zeppelin, but who are your in, who are your influencers? Who really made you want to want to play music? Because I, I imagine yeah. at first you were you were playing other people's music, right? As opposed to creating your own. Yeah, and I still I still do that to a great extent. You know, once I got into jazz music, you know, I discovered you know the Great American Songbook and you know just this vast litany of songs that people have recorded in so many ways but um the people that i love um still listening to you know are mostly jazz guitarists um people like joe pass wes montgomery you know all all the greats emily remler was just a wonderful guitar player and uh and then uh, i like a lot, i like listening to trumpet players um uh, chet baker is one of my particular favorites cuz he just he just plays just very, very melodically, and, and he has a great voice as well. And so, I, um, in, yeah, in the I, singing that I do, I try to mo- model my voice a bit after that. <laughs> yeah, here's what we need to do. I we need to have you, and of of course, you know, I'm not pressuring you into it, but I, it'd be cool if you could record a, a, a intro to this podcast. That'd be nice. Oh, I, might, I would, I would love to. I might have yeah. to hire your services. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, of with that 1.6 dollars that I make every yeah, week. Right, so. Right. Well, you know, I'll have to make payments over the course of the you next know, decade or two. <laughs> That's but, okay. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's it's very interesting. I love to see people who have a skill outside. I, I see a lot of people. Here's what I see. A lot mm-hmm. of people in this field who have lived their whole life not getting a skill outside of this field. And it's because they're so ingrained in it. They, they just right. spend all of their waking hours trying to do this. I don't think that's good. I think that's actually bad for the mind. I think you need to shut shut off portions of your brain sometimes. You know, we talked earlier about how we're, we're always being physicists and astronomers, but there's a an extent to that in which it, it becomes not a good thing. Right. You get you get too in, ingrained in it. You get too caught up in it, and you need something to mm-hmm. to get out. You know, to leave to leave the brain space. And so for for me, that's you know in in partially science outreach, you know, and, and sports. Mm-hmm. Those are my things. Right. I, right. You know, when, when football's on, on sun, Sunday is the Lord's day in my mind and the Lord is NFL, <laughs> you know? So I can't, you know, when, when Sundays come, I have to just sit there and watch football all day. And of course some Saturdays too, like, you know, I'm an, I'm a big Oklahoma fan and I don't know if you watch WVU, but they play in a few weeks and I'm sorry, but they're going to have to lose. <laughs> so, but you know, like, I think it's important to to find something that you're passionate Absolutely about is, yeah. outside and and really f- follow that, you know. And it's it's really good also to know that you can partake in something, and you mm-hmm. don't have to make a living out of it. Right. It gives right. you a real sense of of freedom and creativity to explore. If you were trying to make a living out of music, you probably wouldn't be the same musician. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's an interesting interesting thought. You know, you'd probably be trying to be more of what society would expect you to be in the sense that right, you want right. people to tune in and listen mm-hmm. because you know the world isn't isn't putting on on folk music 
you know. Right. Um, right. It's unfortunately, <laughs> you know, it's 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 the truth though. Yeah. Um, the that's truth right. is that if you want to be, you know, you'd have to be, you know, Duncan the rapper or something. Right. Right. If you oh, wanted to to be successful in music. It's a frightening but, thought. Yes, but because <laughs> I mean, may, maybe you could become the first big, um, you know, mainstream folk artist. Maybe I don't know. I th- I believe that you have it within you. You know, I think you could. I think you could do it. But but yeah, it really does. Like, if you're trying to make a living out of something, it it does constrain constrain mm-hmm. you to being a certain way. Right. And, yeah, and with with music these days, you know, it's the 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 way you can record now. So it's with such high quality and so and relatively cheaply uh, has tra- has changed everything. So you know, when when I was starting, you. you You'd just be able to listen to the great artists who, who went into a studio, but now you can, you know, you can find all of these great musicians who are just recording from home, and you, you just opened up to so much more. Yes, yeah, that, that, that's true, and you also have a medium to disperse the music that mm-hmm. you never had. That's right. Yeah, you know, the internet gives. Mm-hmm. I t- I tell people all the time. I I try, you know, not like I have a lot of wisdom or, or anything like that. I'm just trying to find my own way in the world right now, but. Mm-hmm. I tell people all the time, no matter what your passion is, I truly believe you can make a, you could be successful doing it on the internet. The internet yep. has opened up a platform for you to be successful doing whatever the hell you want. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, whether you want to weave baskets on YouTube, you could literally do that. If you put the time and effort into making your basket weaving videos the best goddamn videos ever made, yep. you could make a living weaving baskets. You really That's could. Right. That's right. And, and I try to instill this and I, what gives me inspiration is I see a lot of young kids that are doing it, you know, mm-hmm. like the, the, the people who make a living playing video games, kudos to them because what they did is they found a niche in society. They found, you know, something <laughs> yeah. that, that they can make money doing that they love. Right. And, and, you know, whether or not they, they engineered it on purpose or whether or not they stumbled onto it by accident doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. The fact is yeah. that they're doing it. Yeah. And, and I love right. it, you know? Yeah. No, it's a, it really is amazing how that's how that's just changed our our lives in so many ways. I agree. Yeah. And now we live in a world where academics are even using the internet to become you know superstars in a sense. Right. You, know, you look at Neil deGrasse Tyson. He is very much, um, you know, he he would have been successful in science outreach regardless. Mm-hmm. But his his ability to disperse the information through the internet is something that really made him grow in a way that that wouldn't have been possible before i think that's right yeah yeah and so you see like do you know who jordan peterson is are you familiar no with him? i do not jordan peterson i think he's a psychologist he's a clinical uh-huh. psychologist and uh he what he did was he recorded all of his lectures and he uploaded them online and in the course of you know three years or so he became a, a real a superstar if you will on youtube on just recording his lectures and now he's an academic who literally goes on tour Right. He goes on tour to different cities and he does public speaking. And it all came from the fact that he was just being a professor at like mm-hmm. the University of Toronto. I think he's where he was. Right. Um, and so you, you, it really opens up this medium where no matter what it is you do, you can do it well and you can probably make money from it. Yeah. And it's a little bit like, you know, what we were talking about the universe. There's so many people out there that there's always somebody who's interested in what, what it is you're doing. It might be a small audience, but, um, but you can reach those people now. Like yes. You couldn't yeah. And you can also, you know, grow that audience because people are very uh-huh. mendable. You know, you can, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. can certainly, you know, change. So if someone, you know, 
thinks about why, why in the world would I watch a basket weaving video? Okay. But if the person's being funny, if they're being witty, mm-hmm. if they're being, you know, really analytical about it, you might right. get inspiration. You might be like, wow, this is actually a pretty cool basket weaving video. You might put it on the background. I, I don't know. But th- the point is that there are, you know, ways to, to reach people and ways to grow beyond anything that mm-hmm. ever existed. And are you using the internet in that way? Or are you more along? Because there's actually a downfall to that. The downfall of that is the lack of connection to individuals. So, you know, playing music, there was like being there live to watch the Doors play or being there live to Mm -hmm. watch Led Zeppelin play. Or, or, you know, I've gone to to many classic rock concerts because my wife's a a big fan. So I've seen the Eagles and I've seen Tom Petty and I've seen, Uh uh, you know, Fleetwood Mac and I've seen... Several members of the Beatles, uh, obviously not John Lennon, but uh, I've seen these people live and it's it's a different world. It's a different feel mm-hmm. than than being there. And so the internet does steal that aspect from you. It does. Yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, with, with the music, I'm just using it to, to archive what I'm doing you know, in, this, in this side of my life. You know, I, I look on music in a very similar way to um, – to discovering uh, things in science, you know, that you if you write a song or you interpret someone's song in a new way, you've got it's the same. I don't know. It's some, hard to describe. It's the same piece of my brain that is excited by that, and so I'm just so excited that I feel compelled to just record it as best I can for now and just put it out there. Uh, and it just doesn't get lost in that sense. You know, you don't have these these sets of tapes that nobody ever hears. It's just just gives you that outlet. Yeah, that is cool. Do do you find your students listening to your music? I they don't mention it too much, and, and I don't push it on them. <laughs> right. I feel like so, you know, but, if I had a professor or an advisor who was a, a you know a personality on the internet, then I feel like uh-huh. I would really like get involved in that personality. Some some of them you know talk to me about it, but uh, and you know and I play um, every. Every two years, I teach this class in relativity, and, and, I, and I've got this tune where I set the entire um, um, subject of general relativity to music, and so I, I play that every every couple of years, and so I subject them to that. <laughs> That's yeah, it it's really cool. It's you know, I have another. I had an undergraduate professor who did the same thing. He's a you know, a, I don't want to say aspiring musician because that implies he's trying to make a living out of it, but but he's an he's an avid guitar player, I'll say. Right, right. And uh, you know, he he does the same thing that you do. He just plays sort of, you know, in his free time and then yep. and isn't looking to make a living, isn't looking to be, you know, Ed Sheeran or, or whoever is popular these days. I don't know. You know, I don't I think to be popular nowadays you have to get a face tattoo and like, <laughs> you know, have rented Lamborghinis or I, I don't know. I don't know what you have to do, but you know, yeah. I wouldn't encourage face tattoos though. I, f- I think that's a bad decision. I, really, I, I think, yeah, I, 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 <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe get a fake one, like a fake face tattoo just for marketing purposes, but come on, you know, you eventually, eventually you're going to maybe be out of money and Face tattoos are not a good way. You know, if you have like your resume or your CV written on your forehead, that is not an effective way to communicate your skills, I don't think. No. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe no. these people have it figured out and maybe I should get a face tattoo if I want to be successful. I don't know. 
Well, I can just never just, I've always thought about getting a tattoo and, um, but I can never decide what to, what to do. Uh, so I end up not, not doing anything, which is probably, yeah, probably best. No, I'm with you actually, because <laughs> you know, when I was like 14, I was like all for getting like yeah. tattoos all over my body. You know, I wanted to be like covered in tattoos, but as I got older, I'm like, wait a minute, what do like my mind changes so often. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My, my opinion changes so quickly that I'm not sure I'd even know what I'd want to get on my body. Right. Right. You know, I'd get some, I'd, I'd get something and I'd want it removed for like the next right. year. Because of course, when you're 14, all you want on your body is like political statements and, right. you know, anarchy and things like that. But when you get older, you're like, wait a minute, I, I literally <laughs> don't, I don't have the same opinion that I did two months right. ago. You know, so if I get Donald right. Trump tattooed on my arm and then I don't like him anymore, you know, it's a real problem. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but anyway. <laughs> you know, it's it's been great talking to you, Duncan. I think we should probably wrap the conversation up. Do you have? Yeah. Do you want to plug anything? Do you want to tell people where to find you, how to contact you? Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been great. It's been a lot of fun. Um, I would like to say two things. Um, one is, if your listeners are interested in finding out more about the Pulsar Search Collaboratory, they can go to lgmfilm.com littlegreenmanfilm.com. Oh, that's clever. Yeah. (laughs) And so um, there was a whole documentary made by one of my wife's friends um, about the the whole process. And so you can see a trailer of that there and um, you can find out more about it. Um, And if you you want to find out more about me, I have my own website. It's just duncanlorimer.com. And you can find find all the random music that I I put on there, and I I plan to do put, to put more scientific stuff as well at some point once I get get around to it. Okay, yeah, I I will put the LGM film um, link in in the descriptions everywhere so people can that find would it. Be great. And I'll yeah. also link your your website. And so cool. I encourage people to to reach out to you if they have questions or concerns about you know just anything you know. Yeah, I, I would love to hear from you. Yeah. So so with that being said. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoy the conversation. We're out.
Thank you.